Street is uh, Cactus 1539. Hit first, so you're lost trust. I'm told returning back towards LaGuardia. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading up uh, 220. 220. Sorry, stop you to park. You just got emergency returning. It was the worst, sickening, pit of your stomach falling through the floor feeling I've ever felt in my life. He held that raft. He stood in the water, like waist high the whole time and held the raft. Because I said, do not let us go. These audio clips take us back to one of the biggest news stories of the year, when U.S. Airways Flight 1549 crash-landed into the Hudson River in Manhattan on January 15, 2009. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Images of Captain Sully Sullenberger, his five-member crew, and the 150 passengers of Flight 1549 are all unforgettable. On this Cityscape before Thanksgiving, we'd like to take you back to the miracle on the Hudson via one of the passengers, whose life has been forever changed. Coming up, the passenger in seat 7A shares his story. Also today, Thanksgiving Harlem style. We'll pay a visit to the world-famous Sylvia's Restaurant. Casey Jones has a lot to be thankful for. He was sitting in seat 7A on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 when it crash-landed into the Hudson last January. He joins us this morning to share his story and talk about how his life has changed. Casey's featured in a new book called, what else, Miracle on the Hudson. Casey, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You're from Jacksonville, Florida. I am. And you work for Bank of America? I do. And you're married with four kids. Married with four children. My oldest daughter, Mandy, is 25. Kaylin is 21. My boys, Connor and Michael, are 16 and 9. How has life changed for you in the last nine-plus months? Yeah, it has changed in many, many ways. I think one of the biggest changes now is every morning when I wake up, I know I'm going to have a great day. I'll have challenges, and, and there will be things that come up and emotions and all that. But you know what? It's still a great day. How often do you think of that day, January fifteenth, two 2009? I think of it every day. Um, it'll be at random times. People will bring it up. If I ever meet somebody and for the first time they're finding out that I was on the plane. How frequently do you fly for work? I fly quite a bit. Uh, I've taken over 60 flights since uh, since the crash in the Hudson. How soon after that crash did you get on a plane? Yeah, my next business flight was 10 days later. My wife and I discussed it quite a bit. Uh, we've been married 26 years, and uh, and we discussed, do I take that flight? Do I put it off? Do I not fly anymore? And uh, as we talked about it, we decided, you know, that first flight is going to be out there forever until I take it. So might as well get back on the horse, get up here, and, and, and get it over with. And uh, that's what I did. I understand that you call your wife 10 times a day now. That's something you didn't do before flight 1549. Our relationship has, has deepened. I would say that it was strong before that. Um, it's deepened, and, and the appreciation that each of us has for each other and for our family and for our friends is is even deeper than it was. Do you do anything differently now than you did when you got on a plane prior to Flight 1549? Yeah, definitely. Um, first of all, the first thing I do is I listen very closely to that safety briefing, and I can tell you I have heard it hundreds of times. Uh, that day in the Hudson, though, after hearing it hundreds of times, I didn't strap my life jacket and I did fall in, and the life jacket came off over my head. So that safety briefing is very, very important. Um, I also used to be a very, very comfortable flyer, and uh, I'm not as comfortable anymore. I used to get on a plane and, and fall asleep before we left the gate. Ever since that day, though, I really pay very close attention to everything. 
um, keep my awareness level and my alertness level very high. I think in my brain I know the chances of anything happening, as they always were, are very, very slim. But something in my gut or in my heart says, you know what, just be ready and be prepared just in case. Take us back to that day. Take us on that flight. Take us to seat 7A. What was it like? Yeah, takeoff was was very, very normal. Everything was fine. And I divide the event into three 90 to 100 second um, intervals. Uh, So we took off and 90 to 100 seconds later, we hit the birds. And there was a loud sound, like a popping noise you hear when you turn a PA system off. That's what it sounded like. And about two or three women behind me screamed, and, and, and that got my attention very quickly. You had a window seat. Could you see anything out the window? Um, I had actually had my eyes closed when the birds hit, so I didn't see anything as far as when it happened. But as soon as that noise came and I heard the ladies scream, my seat lined up directly with the front of the left engine. And I looked out the window, and I could see the cowling around that engine was just rattling. And I knew that wasn't good. But in my mind, we still had the right engine because I thought, okay, I know this one's gone. It's not making any noise. When we hit the birds, we decelerated very, very quickly, and we made a sharp left-hand turn. You know, after flying hundreds of times, there's noises you hear, there's bumps that you feel. This one was definitely different. Uh, this is uh, Cactus 1539. Hit birds through lost thrust on both engines, returning back towards LaGuardia. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading of uh, 220. 220. Sorry, stop your departures. Got emergency returning. It's fifteen twenty nine. He uh, bird strike. He lost all engine. He lost the thrust in the engines. He's returning immediately. Cactus fifteen twenty nine. Which engines? He lost thrust in both engines. He said. So, what were you thinking? You figured you would go back to LaGuardia and land. That was my hope. And as we were, uh, we we made a second left hand banking turn. Um, after the first one, I thought it was so sharp and so steep. I wondered if we'd spiral in, but then we leveled out a little bit made a second left-hand turn that lined us up over the Hudson, and I could see across Manhattan, and I could see the runways at LaGuardia. So my first thought was, he's going to make another left turn, take us back to one of those runways on LaGuardia, go across Manhattan to get us there. And once we passed that 90-degree mark to go back to LaGuardia, in my mind, I, I was telling myself, get ready, our, our plane's going to crash. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Turn right 280, you can land runway right. 1 at Teterboro. We can't do it. We can get it for you. Do you want to try to land one one three? We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. And what's happening in the plane there? Are people praying? Are people screaming? What's happening? Nobody's screaming. It was very, very quiet. It was eerily quiet. As I mentioned, I kept thinking to myself, why doesn't he fire the right engine? And I even said that to my seatmate, Joe Hart in 7B. Why doesn't he fire the right engine? And he kind of looked at me with the same fear in his eyes that I'm sure I had in mind and just said, I don't know. And uh, so we continued that descent, and and it was absolutely quiet. And then we heard those now seven famous words, this is your captain, brace for impact. I'm sorry, say again, Cactus. Cactus, 15.9, radar contact is lost. You also got Newark Airport up at 2 o'clock in about 7 miles. 210-4718. I think he said he was going to the Hudson. Are you and Joe talking to each other throughout this whole ordeal? Absolutely not. Um, We are just willing the plane to stay in the air, as I think all of us were. It was, this can't be happening. It was that moment of denial. It was, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, how are we going to get out of this. It's got to end okay because it always does. We know that some people grabbed for their cell phones. Did you do that to call your wife? My wife and my 8-year-old son, uh, Michael, were on another plane at the same time. 
headed to Buffalo to visit relatives, and it was a Christmas present to him to see snow for the first time as well. And uh, so I reached for my cell phone because I wanted to leave her what I refer to as the I love you message. I thought at that point in time, those might be the last words she ever heard from me. But uh, my cell phone has a password on it, and my hands were shaking too badly, and I couldn't get the password in. And uh, I had that one chance, and I blew it. I can't even imagine what that feels like to think that your plane is going down, that this is it. I can't even put myself in that position. You were there. The the comment that we hear most often is, I can't imagine. And, and I catch myself saying it to other passengers when I listen to their accounts. But as soon as I put the cell phone back in my pocket, I immediately went to prayer. I, I got into the brace position. Um, I began to pray. And while praying, and that was 90 seconds from the time that we uh, heard that command um, until we hit the water, uh, while I was praying, I was planning my escape. How am I going to get out of this? I understood and I accepted the fact that I may die in this. Remarkably, I wasn't afraid to die, but I thought about what I would be leaving behind, and that's what hurt the most. Did your whole life, as they say, flash before your eyes? I can't say that it did, but the thought of everything, that was, of everyone, I shouldn't say everything, everyone, because that was what really was important is the people in my life, that's what was going through my mind. And so I'm praying, I'm thinking about my loved ones, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when we hit, if the plane breaks, it usually breaks where the wing intersects the fuselage. If it breaks there, where am I going to go? If we flip over, where do I go? If we cartwheel, I just got very tactical. And while I admitted that you know what, this could be the end, I never accepted it. I must say that's pretty impressive to be able to think of all that while your plane is going down. (laughs) Well, thank you. I hope I don't have to think about it again. (laughs) Now, what did it feel like? What did it sound like when the plane made impact with the Hudson? A lot of it depended on where you sat. And, and, uh, you know, the, the book does a great job explaining from the front of the plane to the back of the plane what it was like. And in my seat and those of us in the front, I describe the impact as sudden and severe, but I don't use the term violent for my own personal experience. The folks in the back of the plane, it was definitely a violent impact. When we hit, um, the the water, when the plane impacted the water, it tore the skin off the back of the plane underneath, and that forced the water to start coming up through into the floorboard. So their experience was truly traumatic. Did you injure yourself upon impact? Did you hit your head or anything? Yeah, the first time we hit, and, and if you've seen the, the video of the of the impact, you know, we kind of hit tail first, and I was in crash position, and it was a sudden slowing but not that complete stop, and the top of my head hit the tray table, and I opened a cut on the top of my head, and I didn't find that until I got to the hotel probably four or five hours later. And then um, as we skidded along there, I looked up because I wanted to see if there was fire. My biggest fear was fire because I thought every time a plane crashes, there's fire. So I kind of cheated and I looked out the window and there was just a wall of water rushing by. And it was like pulling up to Niagara Falls and taking out earplugs. It was really loud. And so as I looked out, the plane, the engine right outside my window dug into the water and the plane stuck and twisted about 45 degrees. And when it did that, that was sudden. And then I did a face plant into the tray table and uh, thought that I had uh, probably had a bloody nose or, or perhaps broken my nose. And I looked up and I looked over at Joe and his nose was bleeding. So the first thing I did is I checked if mine was and it wasn't. And then it was just time to get out. I'm witnessing the airplane is going down. It's on fire. Where, left where, where? I'm in the Bronx. Yes, a, a, a plane had just crashed into the, into the Hudson River. Oh, my gosh. Did you think the plane was going to sink and sink fast? Well, that was the initial thought. How long do we have? we got to get out. And so I grabbed my seat cushion. 
Um, I had my suit coat laying across my lap. It was just the way that I traveled. And I made a conscious decision to let it fall to the floor because I thought, I'm not a good swimmer on a good day, and there's no way I wanted to have that weighing me down if I ended up in the water and had to swim today. The media reports made us all believe that everything was done in a very orderly fashion, that people in that cabin were all helping each other. Was that the case? It was, I describe it as a grade school fire drill, and um, it wasn't, no, after you, well, wait, I'll go after you. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> but it was, it was orderly. It was get in line, stay in line, no talking, get out the door and go. And, and that really was, was what I think we captured as, as far as the mood getting out. It was just um, a heavily business-traveled flight. People knew what they had to do, and they went about their business and did it. But was it every man for himself? What happens is in that survival mode, kind of your sphere of influence is about a three-foot bubble, ar- bubble around you. So nobody really did things to the detriment of other folks, but you were so focused on getting where you needed to go. And then there were definitely many acts of folks helping others. I would think that you must have replayed that scenario in your mind over and over and over again and perhaps even questioned to yourself, oh, maybe I should have done things differently. Do oh. you have that? Oh, yeah. It... Um it was about day four, I think, after the crash, and uh, I called it my guilt day. Um, what, what should I have done? For example, when we were on the wing, um, a helicopter came to drop divers in. I, I didn't know it was dropping divers in, but what I knew was it was off the back of the plane, and the rotor wash was so strong it was almost blowing us into the water. Now, if you'd have asked me the day before that crash, hey, here's the situation, what would you do? I would have told you I'd tell everybody to brace arms. I'd take a leadership position. We'd lock arms, wait till it flew away, get down low so that we didn't get blown off. When it flew away, we'd all stand up and we'd be fine. Instead, that day, I just yelled at the helicopter, get out of here, and it had absolutely no impact, as as we all know. How far was the emergency exit from your seat? I was in row seven, and I came out the door at row 10, so okay. it was three rows back. I made a U-turn, and as I mentioned before about praying and, and, and getting tactical and thinking where I was going to go, that was the door I was going out. And you came out on the left wing of the plane. I was on the left wing, yeah. And did you go directly onto the wing? I got onto the wing. I stepped out the door, and you know, you look at those doors when you're flying, and you say, how does anybody ever get out of these? And I will tell you that day, they looked as big as a garage door. It was absolutely amazing to me. So as I got out the door and stepped onto the wing, I had to make a decision. Do I stay on the wing or get in the water? Because there were three people in the water at that point. And it's cold. We have to remember, it was cold that day. Water temperature was 35 degrees. The air temperature was 20 with, I believe, a 17-degree wind chill. Why did people get into the water? Is it because that they couldn't maintain their footing on the wing or they felt that was the place that they should be away from the plane? They were afraid of an explosion? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, if you think about the pre-flight briefing, it is, in the case of an emergency, get out of the plane and get away from it. They thought the plane might explode, and they thought, got to get in the water and got to get away. I was in the newsroom that day watching this all unfold on television, and while we saw those images of you all standing on the wings of that plane, it seemed that things were calm, that things were okay, but put us on the wings of that plane. What was going on? What were people saying? Uh, there wasn't a lot of talking. Nobody got real panicky. And so I took my cell phone out and I called my then 20-year-old daughter who was a student at University of Central Florida. And how does she react to dad on the wing of a plane in the Hudson? Uh, she answered the phone, happy-go-lucky college student, answers the phone, sees that it's me and says, hi, daddy. And uh, my words to her were, Kalen, I'm okay, but I've been in a plane crash. 
I need you to call everybody and tell them I'm okay, but my plane has crashed and I got to go now. And I hung up. How long did it take for help to arrive? How long were you on that wing? The first boat arrived at the other wing, at the right wing, four minutes after we crashed. Um, on my wing, it was shortly after that, I would say probably the five to six minute mark. I was the last one off the left wing, and I was out there 17 minutes. And, and I know that because we've looked at the cell phone records of the calls that I was making while I was on the wing. How long did that 17 minutes feel to you? Um, I don't think that it felt like 17 minutes. I think it felt faster. I never really acknowledged how cold I was out there. Um, I, I just didn't let myself go there, and I think it was a combination of shock and adrenaline. What did it feel like when you were pulled onto that ferry? Well, it was wonderful because uh, when I stepped off the wing, the wing had iced over, and I fell in the river, and uh, the, the life jacket that I had on came off over my head. So when I came up, the ladder was still there, and, and I grabbed the ladder, and I got about halfway up, and uh, my legs were so cold and uh, there was a deckhand, and, and the second last guy off the wing, Jerry McNamara, were up there, and they were going, come on, you can make it. I said, I can't take another step. And they were like, you know, come on, you can do it. I, di I didn't need the encouragement. I needed my legs to work. And at that point, Jerry reached over and grabbed me by the belt, and that gave me the confidence to take that next step that I wouldn't slide off and go back in. And then they helped pull me over, and as soon as I hit the deck, I shivered just violently for about three hours. Now, are you close to the other survivors? Have you made long lifelong friendships with these people do you think with a number of them yes without a doubt it's just amazing the the bond that we have and it's it's amazing because there's emotions that each of us feels that we know there's only 155 people that can feel that the way that we do i've just been through an amazing experience with these people and it is an amazing bond that we have was it interesting for you to read the accounts of the other survivors for instance, in this book, Miracle on the Hudson, because, you know, you know what you're going through. You know the experience for yourself, but to see what everybody else was thinking and had to say about it. Oh, it's fascinating to each of us. And uh, we all went through the same event, but we all have different experiences. The folks who went in the water early, the swimmers, you know, I got in the water late. Um, the folks who were up in the rafts that, that they couldn't get off the uh, the plane, that they were still tethered to the plane and what happens if the plane sinks. It's just amazing stories from all the individuals, and, and it is. It's fascinating. Did you also follow the investigation closely? I followed it a little bit. In the end, certainly, uh, you know, we found out it was migratory Canada geese, and then you look at all the things that had to line up for us to have the happy ending that we did. It took me about three months to start using the word miracle, but I'm a believer. What do you think of Canada geese? <laughs> well, you know, we've never eaten Christmas goose at Christmas, but uh, this year may be a little different, just uh, just out of principle. Casey Jones, well, we are very happy that you're here in the studio and able to share this story with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Casey Jones was a passenger aboard Flight 1549. His survivor story is part of a new book called Miracle on the Hudson, out now from Ballantine Books. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarkey. Next on the show, one Manhattan eatery's soulful spin on Thanksgiving. Hey, y'all, we just ate some
Harlem's legendary Sylvia's Restaurant is a big part of the city's cultural heritage and draws patrons from all over the world. We spent some time with them as they prepared for the big Thanksgiving rush. My name is Kenneth Woods. Um, What I do here, just about everything. I'm president and CEO of Sylvia's Restaurant. Do just about everything. (laughs) And who is Sylvia to you? Sylvia is my mom, my lovely mom, the one and only. Um, I've been here for about, um, I grew up in the restaurant business. And sitting here next to you is your lovely daughter, right? Yes. Hi, I'm Trinez Woods-Black, Director of Marketing and Special Events. And what Dad forgot to mention is not only, not only is he the president and CEO, he's also owner, which is very important to us. Certainly is, yes. yes. And right here in the white coat, you know, that white coat is a giveaway. You must oh, be the yes. executive chef. Charge. Yes, I'm Nestle Watson, executive chef. Now, here I thought I was coming to do a story on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And this place is more like Santa's workshop right about now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, when you came in the door, you got a little taste of what the next month is going to be like for us. Um, we're preparing for our Thanksgiving pickup packages. And then we have people that actually come to eat with us starting at 11 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day, all the way up until 8 o'clock. We'll be busy, busy, busy. So what is your Thanksgiving then like if you're so busy here? Uh, (laughs) What um, traditionally happens, um, we have a Thanksgiving Day at home also. And I'm busy um, preparing the home meal. Um, But believe it or not, we do a little cheating. Uh, all the um, the turkey um, basically um, is roasted um, here at the restaurant. The collard greens and um, some of the side dishes. We we do the potato salad at home. So it's um, it's between places. Normally, um, the family, most of the family, come down and 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 work with the restaurant, making sure we get um, all our guests fed um, because. The restaurant, even though it's our business, is, is also our other home. Um, so we like for our, um, our guests to feel that when they, they are coming here on any day, but especially on Thanksgiving, that they're getting a taste of what we do at home. And at home we have like maybe about 75 people um, for our Thanksgiving uh, meals. How big is your table? <laughs> Pretty big. We, um, matter of fact, well, we have, you know, the traditional dining room table, then we have the kitchen table, then we have a, a big round table in the living room even, you know. So, um, so it's a lot of different tables to get everyone fed. Was Thanksgiving always a big holiday here at Sylvia's, or did that develop over the years? It definitely developed, and I can remember my grandmother um, telling the story of coming into the restaurant the day after Thanksgiving, and she couldn't get into the door because it was numerous notes stuck into the door, wedged into the door, like, how could you abandon us on Thanksgiving? You have to open. We need you. We need you. And from, from that day on... It was just like the Tooth Fairy and and Santa Claus and the Thanksgiving turkey just walked out of out of the out of the front door of the house and this became Thanksgiving. What kind of preparation goes into Thanksgiving here at Sylvia's? A lot of preparations. Um, um, Ness, um, our chef, um, we start planning months in advance. Um, 
we you know we do calculations on because I can we can tell you some real war stories on mm -hmm. on when we first started with Thanksgiving opening on Thanksgiving you know running low on turkey stuff like that you know I mean like almost even having a deep fried turkey you know but those days are long gone we um we do you know we've had quite a bit of history now of opening on Thanksgiving and having um. We, we do take reservations for, um, for you know, groups. And um, so now we're pretty much prepared. Um, and we start prepping our yams and our collard greens days in advance. We, our, our refrigerators, because uh, our turkeys are seasoned and marinated, you know, um, for, you know, for a day or two um, prior to it. So there's cooking. I mean, the chef could tell you it is yeah. cooking um, like 48 hours of cooking, you know, continuously. And um, on the actual day, we start like 5, 6 o'clock in the morning and start cooking. And, you know, we average, let's say, uh, up to 2,000 uh, 2, pounds of turkey on that particular day. On Sunday. And as far as yams, oh, it's endless. You know, yams, we go into like at least 1,000 pounds for that day. Not mention the colored greens now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about cases and cases like we have, let's say, 150 cases for that particular day and of, all of greens. The yams are definitely fresh. And we have guys in the back peeling all, you know, all day long. You know. I was going to ask you, how many people do you oh, have with you in the kitchen? We have a staff of, let's say, about 22 guys. You know, prepping and you know, cooking and stuff like that. It's you know, like a Sanders workshop. You know, these guys doing this. And, you know, it's. It's, 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 it's a sight to see. Let's it's put it that a way. soulful symphony. Yeah. It's like a soul food symphony at its best, and everything just works in in harmony to get it out. Ness, do you have to mentally prepare for this? Oh, definitely, most definitely. Oh, yes. You know, um, you know, like I said, I start off like days in advance. You know, and you know, you, you know, it's the way you 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 have to figure this out. You know, you have certain guys, you know, doing certain, you know, chores, you know, so it's, it's a He's task. He's being modest. Ness is already <laughs> trying to get mentally prepared. He was like, an interview before Thanksgiving? Talk to me more about the menu, Ness, and what's special about it. For example, let's talk about the turkey. It's a traditional, you know, Thanksgiving. We average, a, each turkey average 40 pounds. That's kind of, yes, yeah, that's, that's right. You have a big oven. Yes, <laughs> a huge oven, you know, so it takes, let's say, about six to seven hours for one, you know, one turkey. So that's the reason why we start off really early in the morning and cook, like I said before, about 200 pounds of turkey. And sometimes that's even not enough. You know. What about my favorite? My favorite is the, the cornbread stuffing. How do you make the oh, cornbread stuffing? Oh, yeah, that cornbread stuffing. stuffing, this is traditional for this restaurant. We have cornbread, so we use cornbread stuffing for our turkey, you know, as a dressing. I would imagine it's difficult not to go in for a little tasting while this is all being prepared. Well, well, that's the the hard part. Like I've been watching what I've been eating for the past two months, and in preparation for Thanksgiving, I try to lose a couple of pounds because I know I'm gonna going to hopefully not put them all back on, but I want to be able to to eat. And the staff. They get very excited about the turkey. We can't keep them out of the kitchen. Like, can we can we have turkey yet? <laughs> can we have turkey yet? How about you? What's your favorite? Oh well, I think um, the turnips and the greens. You know, because that's um, that's the time of the year we do do um, put turnips with the with the greens, and it's um, it's especially great. 
Oh, and my specialty, specialty uh, yeah, is the ham. It's the ham. I, I, I do amazing glaze um, at home and here at the restaurant. If you do say so yourself. If I do say so myself. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it has some, some amazing ingredients. But it's, I tell you, the base of it is, you know, um, you have the, this pineapple and you have the clove. And, but Sylvia's sauce mixed into that kajara <laughs> um, <laughs> creates such an amazing flavor. Ness, let me ask you about the desserts, because I know at my home we have the traditional pumpkin pie, maybe an apple pie, but your desserts are a little bit spicier than that, so to speak. Yeah, our desserts are different. Um, you know, most people use pumpkin pie. You know what we use? Sweet potato pies, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a southern tradition, you know, sweet potato pies, you know, and just, oh, it's, it's amazing. And the cobbler, the peach cobbler... Is amazing. Yeah. Oh, the peach cobbler, banana pudding, you know, something yes. like that. But especially the peach cobbler and, and, and the sweet potato pies. Oh, it's out of sight. Yeah. What item is timeless on your menu? Something that you would never change? Is it the collard greens? Oh, yeah. The collard greens. But for entrees, we can never open a door if we didn't have fried chicken and barbecue ribs. Even on Thanksgiving? Even on Thanksgiving. Even on Thanksgiving. <laughs> You would think that um, two birds would compete with each other, but you have to always have fried chicken when you open Sylvia's doors, always, yes. We do a lot of frying. <laughs> we do. Can I get a collective happy Thanksgiving? Happy Thanksgiving! From Sylvia's! <laughs> the folks at Harlem's famed Sylvia's Restaurant just days before their big Thanksgiving feast. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can now become a fan of Cityscape and Why Wouldn't You on Facebook. Look for WFUV Cityscape, and you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.